Well, if you have a cell phone, you would have likely gotten an alert on Wednesday, uh, regardless of whether or not your cell phone was on silence or, or however else you might keep your phone. This was a test that was sent out to see that the uh, alert system would work in case of an emergency. And so it was sent to, to everyone's phone who at least had service or didn't disable that kind of feature on your phone or what have you. But imagine, if you will, that you received that same emergency alert, perhaps today, and found out that that was not a test, but you received the alert and you found out that the world as we know it would soon come to an end. I wonder how you would live your final days, perhaps hours. You might think it best to quit your job. You might want to be near your loved ones as best as you can. Or maybe you would just freak out and start crying. Well, as it turns out in our text from this morning, the end is near. And this does not come from your phone or television, but from the very word of God. Peter tells us in verse 7 that the end of all things is at hand. That is to say, it's within reach. It's near to you. It's close. The end of everything is, is coming quickly to us. And the end of all things will be marked by Christ's return when he comes to judge the living and the dead. And it's easy to see why Peter would bring this up at this point in his letter. In the previous paragraph, Peter wrote how these Christians are going to be judged by the world because of their way of life. But Peter assures us that the world's judgment is not the final judgment. Listen to what Peter said in verses 4 through 7. He said, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And so he continues with this idea of judgment. And he says, the end of all things is at hand. Now, not for the sake of those unbelievers, but now talking to us as Christians. He tells us the end is near. His announcement is, is crystal clear. Christ's return is imminent. And when Christ returns, our exile will be over. But we might look at this and say, well, how is it possible for Peter to even say this? Regarding the end of all things, Jesus himself said concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So how could Peter, or the rest of the apostles for that matter, who said things very similar to this, how could they possibly say that the end is at hand and that it is near? Furthermore, 2,000 years have passed since Peter wrote this letter, and yet our lives go on. The world continues its its rotation and its orbit, and, and in all of this, Jesus has yet to return. So did Peter and the other apostles get it wrong? No, of course not. We need to consider a few things. Consider first what 2,000 years are like to the eternal God. Regarding this same return of Christ that seems to be slow by the time Peter wrote his second letter. He said this, 2 Peter 3, he said, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, 
but that all should reach repentance. You know what it's like to be on a road trip with young kids, right? 20 minutes later, are we there yet? No, we still got three hours to go. 20 minutes later, are we there yet? Nobody, you're going to have to just sit tight. And on and on to kids, just these 20 minutes or even five minutes can seem like an eternity. So too for us, 2,000 years seems like far too long for the Lord to tarry. But understand this, he is not slow to fulfill his promise. And whatever slowness we might count it, these 2,000 years or two days in his time, is his patience towards us that we might repent. And furthermore, we need to understand this, just as Peter says here in 2 Peter, he has promised us this, that he will return. This is a promise that we can bank on. Jesus and the apostles taught that that the Lord's return would come like a thief in the night. Listen to how Paul said it in 1 Thessalonians. He said this, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, that's the day of his return, it will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. I wonder how many of us lock our doors at night. I do, and I'm a stickler about it. I've got one of those ring cameras at my door. I capture anyone who would come up, and I tell you what, more times than not, they're just cats who come to my door, though there's a few others who come, those youth who prank me at Christmas. But never have I had anyone, at least since I've had my ring camera that I'm aware of, come up and try to open my door. And yet I continue insistently to lock my door. And even if I don't remember locking it, I'll, I'll get up out of bed to ensure that, that my doors are locked. Because you never know when someone might try to break into your home. This is what Jesus is teaching us and the apostles as well when when they teach us about the the return of Christ coming like a thief in the night. Listen to Jesus now in Matthew 24. But know this, that that if the master of the house knew what part of the night the thief would come in, he would have stayed awake and he would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So the teaching is this. You might not know when he's going to come, but the coming of Christ is near. So be ready. This is news, and this is a reality that we cannot afford to ignore. The end of redemptive history began when Christ ascended into heaven. And today we are nearer to Christ's return than we were yesterday. So my question, that hypothetical question, isn't hypothetical at all. What will you do with the remainder of your time? Will you quit your jobs? Will you surround yourselves with loved ones? Or will you simply lose your mind and come undone? Well, Peter has wisdom for us, instruction for us on how we are to live in light of Christ's imminent return. Listen again to verse Seven. He says this, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Here's the first thing I want us to see. This is the first thing Peter wants to see. He says, The end is near. Keep your head for your prayers. Keep your head. That's what he means by being sober-minded and self-controlled. You see, the world today is lacking this kind of sober-mindedness. 
When something bad happens, we either lose our minds or in the days when things are good and plentiful, we tend to keep ourselves distracted with worldly pleasures so as to not consider the possible sorrows or even more so the serious joys that we might had that might be had through, through enjoying God. And so today we are in desperate need of self-control and sober minds. Now this isn't the first time that, that Peter's instructed us to be sober-minded. Listen again to what he said at the very beginning of this letter in verse 13. Chapter 1, verse 13, he said, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Throughout this letter, Peter has been talking to these exiles, these who are wandering in the world but rejected by society. But there's a second theme that's important that we wouldn't miss, and that is the hope of heaven that we have, the hope of Christ's return. And so now with Jesus' return in mind, Peter tells us to hope for that day. And now again with the end being soon, he calls us to be sober-minded and self-controlled. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now when it comes to being sober-minded, of course this means being sober and not getting drunk. This is actually what Peter instructed us about in the previous paragraph in verse 3. The time suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So certainly being drunk does not lend to having sober minds that hope for the, the return of Christ. And so it fits within this command. But there are all kinds of other distractions that would hinder us from being sober-minded and not even inherently sinful things in and of themselves. Many good things keep us from having our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, work that needs to be done, homes that need to be maintained, family functions that need our attention, errands that need to be ran. And if you can, maintain some level of exercise for even that is of some value. And then there are the meaningless distractions, like the 24-hour news cycle that keeps you constantly looking to see what's happening in the world. Sports, and not just sports, but sports news. The endless stream of TV shows, video games, social media. And all of these are just the tip of the iceberg of those things which would keep us distracted in this world without having us be sober-minded, fixing our mind on Christ's return. Do you remember how Jesus described the people during the days of Noah? We might think of them as those wicked, evil people in that godless day. But when Jesus describes it in Matthew 24, it doesn't seem so wicked. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 24, verses 37 and following. For as were the days of Noah, so will be of the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the days when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage sounds like good things to me. The things every single one of us is, is involved in in some degree or another. But it's these very things that kept them from being aware of the flood that was coming. And it's these very things that will keep us from being sober-minded and being ready for Christ's return. So we need to be sober-minded. But to what end? Well, if we're to answer that question for ourselves, we might say that we need to be sober-minded so that we can be salt and light in the world, to be different from others who are, are 
involved in drunkenness and debauchery. Others still might say that we need to be sober-minded so that we can share the gospel with those who are in the world to be ready to, to give a, a, a defense to those who would ask us. And those are good and fine answers, but that's not what's in Peter's mind here. 1 Peter 4, 7, he says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. We are to be sober-minded to this end so that we would pray. If we are to rightly have before our minds the nearness of Christ's return and our great need of God's grace, then we would be a people of constant prayer. But where prayer is lacking, it is owing to this, we are not sober-minded. I find that my prayer life is far more rich when I spend time in the Word, and I, I suspect that it has everything to do with what's right here in the text as well. The Word helps me think clearly and rightly about myself and the world. And yet what discourages us from spending time in the Word and prayer what keeps us and hinders us from spending hours in the word and in prayer each day? Is it not because we are too busy? Or if we're honest, we're too distracted from that which is most important? If you want to know what being busy looks like, you should read or perhaps even listen to a biographical sketch of Martin Luther. I just listened to one on a podcast just a few weeks ago. It was certainly wonderful, but if you're too busy, you probably aren't gonna read it or listen to it. So take my word for it. Luther was a busy man, likely busier than any of us in here. And yet in his busyness, he's known for having said this. I have so much to do, Luther said, that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. Friends, the point that Peter is making here is simple and yet profound. We need prayer because we need God's help if we are to remain faithful until the very end. But if we are not praying, it is because we are unaware of just how close we are to the end. Peter continues in verse 7 and 8, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Since the end is near, brothers and sisters, let us keep our hearts for one another. We should understand that prayer is not an end in and of itself. Yes, we are to pray. And for to take Luther's advice for it, we should pray for three hours. But prayer is not the end of all things. In light of Christ's returns, Peter says, love one another earnestly. And this, in Peter's mind, is of utmost importance. That's why he says, above all, above all, being sober-minded and, and being prayerful is not an end in and of itself, but it is to lead to this end, that we would love one another earnestly. Paul tells us in Galatians 5.14 that the whole law is fulfilled in this word, that you love your neighbor as yourself. Such is the importance of love, brothers and sisters. Such is the importance that we, we earnestly love one another. For if we do this, we will keep the whole law. So let us understand briefly what love is. And I think it's important that we do so because we often misunderstand what love is. It would be easy to read into this text that love is the act of whatever. Fill in the blank. Love does this. Love covers a multitude of sins. That's what love is. Love is the act of covering sins. 
And Peter's going to continue from this end and talk about all the various ways in which we can lovingly serve one another. But Peter is not describing what love is, but rather he's showing us what love does. But if we say that love is what we do, then I think we might miss the point and we might think we have love in our hearts when in fact we don't. Let me illustrate it this way. Some people run because they love running. While others still, they run because they want the benefits of running. Maybe a good heart, maybe to lose a couple pounds. But those people do not run because they love running. They perhaps hate it. And the doctor told them to run. And so they do it. Hopefully you see why we can't just say love is what we do. Just because we go to church with a bunch of Christians and just because we even might serve one another does not mean that we actually love these people. 1 Corinthians 13 says, if I give away all that I have and if I deliver my body to be burned, loving acts to be sure, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is not simply what we do. Rather, love is a strong, deep affection for someone or something. That's what love is. But to be clear, love certainly does lead us to do all kinds of activities, such as forgiving sins in this text and, and serving one another sacrificially. These are the fruit of love, but not the root of love. But the fruit are important, and the fruit help us examine the root. So let's examine the fruit of love he says this, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Peter here is likely alluding to Proverbs 10. And it says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. So consider that proverb this morning and consider if you're one to stir up strife or cover offenses. When your brother or sister sins against you, are you one to bring that offense before other people and talk about it? Do you correct your brother or sister's sin in front of a group of other people so as to bring shame upon them? You might quickly dismiss such activities, but remember what Jeremiah tells us. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You might say, well, I was just talking or just processing, just venting. But understand what that is, brothers and sisters. If you are one to stir up strife, it is owing to the fact that you have hatred in your heart. And let's call it what it is. It's sin. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. That's what love does. It covers offenses. Not that we simply ignore sins. That's not what Peter has in mind. Rather, if your brother sins, you go directly to him, one-on-one, -on -one, the way we're called to in Romans 18. And if your brother repents of his sins, then you forgive him. That's what it means to cover that offense. Not just seven times, but 77 times. So above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. This is the love that we are to continue in. It's not just loving those who are easy to love. It's not just loving those who are lovely, but it's loving sinners, broken sinners who need forgiveness. So if you're here this morning struggling to, to love your brother and sister in Christ in this radical way, then let me encourage you to this end. First, stop and pray. Repent of your sin. That's what it is. It's sin. 
be, be brutally honest before the Lord, your God. Jeremiah 17, again, the Lord is deceitful above all things, desperately sick, who can understand it? And he continues, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Understand this, there is no fooling God. So you can deceive yourself, but you will not deceive him on that last day when he comes to judge you. So if you're struggling to love your brothers and sisters, then repent of your sins here and now. And then ask God in that same prayer to give you the strength to love your enemy. If you are struggling to love your brothers and sisters, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Know that this is a prayer that the Lord loves to answer. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And the fruit of the Spirit is love. If you're struggling to love, repent and ask God to give you a heart that loves and then remind yourself of how much God loved you when you were a sinner, his enemy. If you don't believe that your enemy is worthy of love, rehearse the gospel through Romans 5. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If your enemy isn't worthy of love, think over then how unworthy you were to receive God's love when you heard the gospel and believed and received grace and forgiveness. If you have been forgiven the infinite debt because of God's great love for you, then how is it possible for you to withhold forgiveness from those who have sinned against you? This is where love comes from. We need to know the source of it. And John tells us, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Brothers and sisters, the end is near. So keep your head for your prayers and keep your heart for your brothers. And finally to this morning, in light of the end, let us keep using our hands for God's glory. There's a saying, I'm sure you know it, that it's possible to be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. But understand, such a saying simply is not true. For one, if you're earthly-minded, you are no earthly good. But moreover, our text shows us that those who are truly heavenly-minded with sober minds, who continue in prayer, and that prayer leads them to love their brothers and sisters, know this, such a love is most useful to people in this world. Listen to how Peter continues and and follow the logic here. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Here he's, he's showing us all the different ways that we are to serve one another as a body. So let's start at the top and consider what we've been called to. Love is often expressed, Peter shows us, through hospitality. Now, hospitality was especially relevant for the early church. You see, the church, when they gathered, they didn't get to to gather often in buildings like this, big buildings that have staff to maintain the facility. But rather, when the church would gather, they would gather in homes. In fact, that's what the church was. The church isn't a building. The church is the people who gather together in an assembly to worship God. 
And so the church, they would gather in these homes. But can you imagine how difficult it would be to host a a Christian gathering where people would worship and, and hear the word and pray together in the midst of a society that is hostile to Christians? And yet Peter exhorts his readers to do just that, to show hospitality to one another. This word hospitality is wonderful, I think, in the original Greek, and so I'm going to be a fool and try to pronounce a Greek word this morning. It's phileoxenos. There's the foolishness there, phileoxenos. This word you can hear has this, this, this familiar word, phileo, which we probably have an idea. It means brotherly love. But the word xenos at the very end is, is a stranger. So the word hospitality, it's a compound word that simply means to have brotherly love for a stranger. And I share this, not because I'm very good at Greek, I'm not, clearly, but I share this because that's exactly what we're called to do as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are strangers in this sense. A lot of us coming together this morning, not because of any similarities that we have as far as family relations go, and yet we're closer than brothers because of what Christ has done for us in the gospel. Because of the blood of Jesus, our relationship with one another is closer than that of even our own flesh and blood who do not know Christ. When Jesus was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brother stood outside asking to speak with him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching his hand out towards the disciples, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven These are my brothers, my sister, and my mother. Do you understand how close then we are to each other, dear ones? Do you understand why we call each other brother and sister and greet each other with such affection? It's because we are united together as one family with Christ as our big brother and with God as our father. So we are to show such brotherly love to even strangers, but not just those who we've known for years in the church, but even those who would come into the church, perhaps even for the first time, but who love Jesus. Such people are your brothers and sisters and and are worthy of welcome. In light of Christ's imminent return, let us show hospitality to one another because when Jesus returns, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. But it's not simply enough for us to simply show hospitality or to show these kinds of acts of kindness and love to one another. Peter adds to it in verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And this is true of the temptation Temptation for those who would host a lot of people in their homes because it can be a lot of work and it can come with a lot of costs. And all the more in this exile, it can be difficult when those very people who come into your home are the people who sin against you. So we might be tempted to grumble when we welcome strangers into our home. But to curb our grumbling, Peter continues in verse 10, show hospitality without grumbling as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Know what a steward is, right? The person who handles the master's goods. And as it turns out, our houses are not our own. 
our homes belong to God. He is the master of our home and we are but stewards of his varied grace. Our homes are given to us to this end that we might use it to, to serve one another. Our food, it comes from the Lord, not from a paycheck. It comes from him. And so it is to be received with thanksgiving and then to be shared generously. To this end, we are to use all of our goods to serve one another as God has given us varied gifts of grace. Hospitality would have been especially important for the, the church in their early gatherings, but it's no less important today. Think about the many community groups that host their groups in their homes, even now, because they recognize that their homes do not belong to them and their goods do not belong to them, but they belong to God. But you don't even have to host a, a community group in order to show hospitality. You can have someone over for a meal. You can invite families over to play in the backyard. You can even let a person take refuge in their home when they need a place to stay. There are numerous ways in which a person might be a steward of their home for, for the, the good of their brothers and sisters. But hospitality isn't the only way that we serve one another either. Peter, he continues, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And then he goes on to give some other ways in which God gives these varied graces to people in the church. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So Peter, he breaks down these varied gifts into two general categories. There's gifts of speaking and then gifts of, of serving. And you might hear in this text, a hint as to how the New Testament church was structured as these people were gathered in a home. There were those who would speak, those who would serve. We know those who taught were often the elders and pastors and those who served were, were known as the deacons. But our text doesn't indicate that these speaking or serving gifts are exclusive to the office of elder or deacon. Regardless of what your position is in the church, you're to use whatever gifts the Lord has given you. If in speaking, speak the word of the Lord. And if in serving, serve in the strength that he supplies. And so if you have a gift of speaking, whether you're teaching kids or leading a community group or teaching from the pulpit or in the equipping hour, understand you are to teach not your thoughts, but the word of God. The pulpit is not a soapbox. And community groups are not the place where you get to grind your ax. Rather, those who speak are to do so as one who speaks the word of God, which is why Peter, I'm sorry, now Paul, exhorted the young pastor Timothy to preach the word, 2 Timothy 4.2. And for those who serve, you are to serve by the strength that God supplies. Now, we don't often think about our, our energy in this way, do we? But Peter exhorts us to work in a strength that is foreign and alien to us. It's from God. Listen to how even Paul viewed his own work. I love this passage in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them owing to God's grace. I worked harder than any of them, Paul said, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And so it is for any of us who, who serve this morning or in any various capacity here in the church, whether it's as an usher or, or someone serving in the coffee team, whether it's someone greeting at the door or, or playing instruments to lead the church in praise, whether it's me speaking even now or whether it's bringing meals to those who are sick and all these activities that we would do to serve the body, we do so not in our own strength, but we do so in the strength that God supplies. Which means we need to pray. We need to ask God for words to say, and we need to ask God for strength for today. 
because we're desperate for him to help us in our weakness. Now, just a warning to those who would look at themselves this morning and feel that they have nothing to offer the church. Know this, that God gives varied gifts of grace. Look again at verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. What Peter's saying here is not everyone is going to have the same gifts. Not everyone is going to be able to speak, and not everyone is going to be able to serve in the same capacities with one another. And in, in addition to these varied gifts, not everyone is even given the same measure of grace as others are. Some will be given five talents, another two, and some will be given one. Now this morning, I want you to know this. I know myself to be a one-talent preacher. And others of you would go, oh, yeah, yeah, you're saying that's just false humility. And some of you, who I was talking to just this morning, were so kind this morning and saying, no, 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 you're, you're, you're just fine. I wasn't even talking about this, but it, it came up here how, how I feel very weak in my ability to, to speak and to teach and to preach. And if anyone thinks otherwise, it's only because you love me. And as we've talked about, love covers a multitude of sins. But truly, I am at best a one-talent preacher, especially if you compare me to the great preachers throughout history or even those who are impactful in our own day. But what am I to do with my one measly little talent? My widow's might. Well, I can get discouraged and I can bury what little I have. But if I do, I will not be found faithful when the master returns. And I say this not out of any sense of false humility this morning before you all, but I say this for your sake. I say this for you. What is most important this morning isn't necessarily what your gifts are, although that is important. What's most important isn't what measure of grace you have received, but what is crucial for each and every one of us this morning is that we are found faithful with what the Lord has entrusted us with. So whether you speak or whether you serve, do it all in the strength that God supplies. And how do we do this? Well, we realize we don't have the strength that we need, and so we ask for God, for the, 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 who is the source and fountain of all blessings. We ask him for help. We ask for words. We ask for strength. We pray that the Lord would give us even cheerfulness in our act of service, that we would not do it with grumbling. And we ask that he would give us love for brothers and sisters in the act that we do. And then when we're done serving, we thank God because anything good that's ever done is all owing to his grace. Which brings us to the very end of our text. What's the end of all these things? What's the end of being sober-minded and praying? What is the end of, of loving and, and forgiving one another? What's the end of lo uh, loving and serving in this way? The, the flow of logic continues on and on to the very end in which he says, in all these different ways, whether you speak, you speak as one of the oracles of God, whether you serve, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And here's the chief end of it all. It is not prayer. It is not love. It is not service. But we do all of these things in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the chief end of our life, that we would glorify God in it all. The Christian life is not simply about right thinking or right feeling. The, the Christian life is not at its end about right doing, although all these things are important, but the end of all of these things is that God would be glorified in it all. And so whatever gifts you have, know this, it is not about you. 
Your gifts have been given to you for the good of the body, yes, and ultimately for the glory of God. And so, brothers and sisters, the end of all things is at hand. What will you do with what is left of your life? When Martin Luther was asked the same question, he said that he would plant a tree and pay his taxes. Incredibly ordinary. And the same thing is called for us this morning from the Apostle Peter. Incredibly ordinary tasks. Keep your life from distractions and the love of the world so that you might pray. Love one another earnestly so that you might forgive those who have sinned against you. And to this end, serve one another as stewards who serve the master. To him belongs all the glory. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do thank you that you have given us your son to die for our sins. Lord, for those who are here who have not put their faith in you, I do pray that you would grant them faith and repentance even now. Pray that they would embrace Christ even for the first time as their Lord and Savior, and so be saved. And, and in that, Lord, would you glorify your name. And even for the rest of us, Lord, may we not be overwhelmed by the, the cares of this world, nor distracted by them. We, may we not be hindered in our love for one another because of our sin or the sin of another. But Lord, in all that we do, Lord, would we be strengthened by your grace to continue in this life faithful unto the end. Lord, we need your help for it all. Apart from you, we can do nothing. And so would you glorify yourself in our lives? Would you pour out your grace on us so that we might be worthy of the gospel? Lord, we thank you that you will complete the work that you have began in us. And so in all of this, Lord, be glorified, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.